Indeed, this is our theme today, the love of Christ displayed in our relationships with one another. Our text today is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Hear the word of God. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. May God bless his word to us today. This text that we are looking at today fits into the broader section of Romans, which is this application portion of Romans, chapters 12 through 16. This, of course, is standing on the foundation of all that he has said in chapters 1 through 11 regarding the gospel, as he has explained and unfolded how God makes sinners righteous. And what we saw in Romans 1 through 11 is that God does this by his sovereign love and by his sovereign grace as he declares the sinner righteous through justification by faith alone. This is a salvation by virtue of Jesus' atoning work for us on the cross where he takes our guilt, he took our sin, died in our place, raised on the third day for eternal life. And we believe in this, we believe in Jesus, and those chapters 1 through 11 were uh, some of the richest doctrinal salvific chapters in all of the Bible. And all that Paul is saying now, and everything that he has said in chapter 12 that we've already seen, now in chapter 13, is all built upon and based upon Romans 1 through 11. And he makes that transition famously in chapter 12, verse 1, with the words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. And what follows from that is all of the horizontal transformation that the vertical Uh, transformation and salvation creates in the life of the Christian, or should create in the life of the Christian, or if we understand sanctification progressively, he is in the process of uh, uh, developing and transforming our lives and our hearts. So this vertical reconciliation with, with God has profound implications for our horizontal relationships uh, with one another. And what we saw in chapter 12 is that that the gospel urges a profound unity and community, this new society, the church, and all of us that are a part of it, uh, seeing ourselves in relationships with other Christians that are marked by love. This emotional care that includes rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Refusing to retaliate when people wrong us, but rather loving even our enemies. It is essentially Paul's Sermon on the Mount as he unpacks for us what horizontal Christianity looks like. And we just spent five weeks on the Christian citizen and God's will for the role of government and God's will for us in relationship to that that government. The Christian citizen. And what we have now is a transition from the Christian citizen to the Christian neighbor. Ah, the neighbor. Are you familiar with these words? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. 
a beautiful day for a neighbor. Could you be mine? Would you be mine? I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. Let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we are together, you might as well say, would you be my, could you be my, won't you be my neighbor? Now, don't we all feel good now? See? It produces applause in the audience. Uh, So what is it that makes that beautiful neighbor, that beautiful Christian neighbor? And the answer is the gospel, the gospel. And when we're done, I, I hope that you understand why living in community with Christians should be like the best experience, having a Christian neighbor and indeed being that Christian neighbor. So Paul now is, uh, he goes from what a Christian citizen lives like now to what a Christian neighbor looks like. And try to get out of your mind your uh, subdivision with this, okay? As, as Jesus will get into this in a moment. What are the marks of a Christian neighbor? And we begin in verse 8 with the fact that, and ironically, of all the things that he could start with, he begins with financial integrity. What do he say in verse 8? Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything. Interesting transition. In verse 8, he talks about our obligation to pay our taxes. And here in verse 9, he describes our obligation to pay our debts to other people. Owe no one anything. Now, if this was the only verse in the Bible, we, could, we would say from this, okay, it is, it's never right for a Christian to have any debts at all. We're not to owe anybody anything. And actually, there's been some leaders down through history who have taken that uh, position. We would say that all debt is sin. All debt is wrong. And we don't believe that. Why do we not believe that? Because we believe in the canon of Scripture, and that means that uh, this verse has to be interpreted by other verses in the Bible. And there are many other verses in the Bible that would indicate that, uh, that, that debt is a legitimate thing. Even the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.14, seems to legitimize a certain kind of borrowing and a certain kind of Christian borrowing. So what does it mean here, owe no one anything. Well, remember, the whole paragraph is about Christian love and Christian neighboring and our duty to love other people. And in society, what is more common than us borrowing things from one another? We borrow things all the time from one another. This could be a rake. It could be a truck. It could be a loan. It could be a whatever. These are consensual agreements that we enter into in which both parties are agreeing to the terms. So am I unloving to my bank if I take out a mortgage with them? No, in fact, they love me all the more and I might get a toaster out of the deal, right? They love me when I take out a mortgage with them. And in normal human relationships, the borrowing of tools, for example, is an indication of friendship. You likely have a neighbor that you would feel comfortable asking to borrow their mower, and you probably have another neighbor that you wouldn't ask to borrow anything from them. It's an indication of a healthy relationship when you feel comfortable saying, hey, could I borrow your whatever for the morning? It's a way for us to help each other, to get along in life. If you own a truck, you have lots of friends, for example. In fact, I have a friend who owned a truck and got rid of the truck because he was tired of everybody asking to borrow his truck. 
All the truck people are like, amen to that. So within friendship, after something is borrowed, especially if it's something maybe valuable or using it was of value, you always have that awkward kind of moment where you're not sure if you owe them anything for the use of that, maybe even their time. And so what do we do? We'll say, we'll ask a question like this. So uh, what do I owe you? And maybe in our hearts we're thinking, I hope nothing, but I feel the obligation to ask at least. What do I owe you? And in friendship, the response is often, you don't owe me anything. We're friends. This is not, a, this is not an obligation. There's no debt incurred because you borrowed this thing. But what happens when you borrow something and you break it? You ever had that? You're like, oh no. It's bad enough I didn't buy this for myself in the first place. Now I gotta buy another one for him. A debt is incurred. And this is what Romans 13 is getting uh, at here. It's not the elimination of all debt or the borrowing of any kind, but integrity in my dealings with people where nobody's looking at me and saying, that guy did me wrong. That, that dude owes me money. We never forget people that owe us money, do we? In fact, just me saying that right now, you got names coming to your mind of people that in the past, uh, that, that, and to this day, they, they, they owe you money. I've owned three houses in my, in my life, and part of being a homeowner is you have this constant you know, this is breaking down and this contractor's coming over and taking care of this and we're gonna have to put a new you know, septic in or a this or a that. It just goes with home ownership. And to this day, I can remember, I think every single subcontractor who somehow cheated me, did me wrong, poor workmanship, something like that, they, they come to my mind just like, you know, just like that. Now, my list is short, thankfully, but I have a list, and you know if you're on it, by the way. <laughs> but what do we think of people that cheat us or that refuse to pay what they owe us? Do we think highly of them? No. We resent it. Few things display, display character more clearly than a lack of integrity with money. This is what Jesus said, money is always a revealer of heart, the values of the heart. So how does a Christian function in society financially? And this is what he's talking about here in Romans 13, verse 8. We're called to do so with solid integrity, to be, to be trustworthy, particularly with money matters, because nothing can mess up a relationship faster than there being something wonky with the money. If you've, even in families, if, if, you know, if the patriarch or the matriarch dies and you know, there's something kind of weird with the will, brothers and sisters who up to this point loved each other, now that relationship can be destroyed. Why? Because of money. Nothing messes things up more than money. And so this is calling us to be the kind of people who in money matters uh, especially live with integrity. Like people look at us and they say, you know, that's a straight up dude right there. His word is his bond. And in terms of arrangements that we have, we're not, we're, nothing's in arrears, nothing is behind. It's all squared up. Now, I'm gonna spend a little more time on this, if you don't mind. 
because we live in such a debt-ridden society and such a credit-living culture that there is a principle behind this principle that we all need to bear in mind, and it's this. It infers that while debt should not be avoided, or that, that there's, let me say it this way, that where debt isn't wrong, at the very least, we should look at it as dangerous. And there is dumb debt, and maybe there's okay debt. So the mortgage on your appreciating home, we'll call that an okay debt. Dumb debt is any debt on depreciating items. So your debt on your house might be okay, but your debt on your boat, no way. That is stupid debt. And there are many people, even God's people, who live constantly with stupid debt. Credit card debt is probably the dumbest debt that there is in the world. I've counseled with couples before. They've shared with me in some detail their financial situation and the dollar amount that they have shared with me on their credit cards that they are in debt and they are making minimum payments on is astonishing to me. And no doubt, as I talk about this, there's no way in a gathering of American consumers like we have right here in the room or online that, that me even saying that is kind of pressing on your heart because you've been living with dumb debt for a long time, and you're drowning in debt. You're in, you're in debtor's jail. The principle here is an important one. Would that we all would be out of debt, that would be a wonderful thing, right? I mean, in a perfect world, we're all out of debt, nobody's gotta live with debt, all our needs are met, and we're just kind of flowing with no debt. But in our world, there is, there is debt. And we need to manage that wisely. Because if we become, if we move into debtor's jail, there's no saving for legacy, uh, uh, legacy kind of uh, savings. There's no room for generosity to the kingdom of God. All my money is being uh, eaten up with all of these expenses. This is not the way that God wants us to live. Listen to Proverbs 22. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Are you in slavery today? Are you enslaved to the decisions that you've made financially in the past? Young people, listen to me a moment. Because you are at a particularly dangerous stage of life with this. The government will give you as much money for college as you want. Did you know that? You don't have to be competent. You don't have to have any future financial like uh, possibilities. They will give you as much money as you want. And when you're 19 years old, it doesn't feel like it's going to be any sort of big deal because all my friends are doing it as well. But that student loan debt can crush you financially for the rest of your life. And I wanna urge our families and the students who are moving into college you need to think about that carefully. And yes, I know you want to go to fancy college and study bagpiping. Because you're so fascinated with bagpipes and you want to wear a skirt. But you come out of fancy college with a degree that won't earn you a dollar? That is really dumb debt. Really dumb debt. Far better an affordable college with a marketable degree than the fancy college and the, and, the, and the nothing degree. 
And we just need to be smarter as God's people about the decisions that we make on all levels that position us in a place where it gets harder and harder to obey Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything. Now, if you are a slave to your debts, I would highly recommend a program that we offer here. Now, the, the coronavirus has messed up our programming, and so we're hoping to get this going again sometime in the very near future. But we've offered for years uh, Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. We've had so many people who were living in jail who've taken that course and have found a way to get out of jail. And I would encourage you to do so or to seek counseling here at our church. We have people that are qualified to help you because we want everybody in our church to owe no one anything and to live a financially wise life. And we believe that when Jesus gets a hold of your heart, he sets your heart in order. And when your heart is in order, the byproduct is you get your financial house in order. Owe no one anything. Let's all think about that in the debt-ridden world that we live in. But that's not the main point here, so I'm gonna move on. That was just an opportunity to speak to a problem I perceive in our culture and indeed in our church. Owe no one anything, notice how the verse goes on, except, okay, there is one debt that he is urging us to, to view here. What is it? To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see that he makes the same point in verse 10, that love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus does, or Paul and Jesus, they don't set aside the law, but they say that love fulfills the law. And the fulfilling of the law was in the Jewish mindset in the first century, and even to this day, a critically important priority. Now, in our culture, there's not many people that are going to walk up to you or you're sitting next to them in the bus or whatever, and they go, hey, you know, how about obeying that law? No, nobody really much is thinking about that. But first century Judaism and these Jewish Christians there in Rome were very much attuned to that Old Testament law, and they were raised with the understanding that they needed to obey that law. You remember the Pharisees who would obey the law, they would mind the, uh, right down to the little seed, or mind, they would tithe right down to the little seeds. They were so circumspect about obeying the law. And when there's over 600 Old Testament commands, you think to yourself, who can remember all of these things? Let's focus on the most important ones. And so in the culture of the first century Judaism, there was this huge debate about what was the greatest command. Do you remember that they came to Jesus and they asked him that very question? Of all the commands that are there in the Old Testament, Jesus, which one is the most important? Now we live in a day where our culture is not that interested in law. Not too much. But they're very interested in love, right? Love. Ah, now we're on to a little more comfortable subject. I'm sort of feeling a little guilty about the debt uh, scourging that he gave us, and, and I don't know so much about the law, but man, we love love. We love love. We, we, in our culture, we love sexual love. We, we love family love. We marital love. We, we love uh, parenting love. And we love love here. 
Think of all, I, was, I got thinking about songs about love, and, and aren't almost all of them about love, like in some sort of way, love lost if you're a country fan, uh, or uh, <laughs> love celebrated in rock and roll, but it's, it's so much about love. So let me give you an example of a song that came to me as, as sort of a, a summary of the, our culture's view of love, let the level of insight here move you deeply. This is the Beatles. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Isn't that wonderful? Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. Nothing you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you. In time, it's easy. Okay, tell us, what's the solution here? All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Now, I present that as a fair summary of the kind of sentimental, subjective approach to love pervasive in our culture today. So you might take that and you might look at uh, this verse and, and say, okay, so what is it that fulfills uh, the law? I have to love. And you would be wrong if it's the way the world looks at it. Because biblical love is much different as it is rooted in the character of God, it is explained in the word of God, and it's on display in the Son of God. And for the conscientious Jewish believer there in Rome, Paul uh, is answering the wonderings of their heart. What about the Old Testament law? And what about all these commands? Now I'm a Christian. Should I care about all these commands? And what Paul does here is he, he doesn't dismiss them, but rather he shows how biblical love fulfills by its very nature the ethical demands of the Old Testament law. And in doing so, makes us great neighbors. Now let's get into this aspect of this. So the way that I'm approaching this is I, I want you to see that there are not two commands that he highlights, and then there is one got to command. Okay, not to and got to. Maybe that'll help you. Back to the text. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, and now quoting from Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, class, is this the greatest command? No. Jesus said the greatest command was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is identified as the second greatest command. But what we find in this is that this command is a summary of the ethical commands of the Old Testament law. So quickly, class, if I might, explain how this works, theologians typically read the Old Testament laws and they divide them into three categories. You have the ceremonial laws, the civic laws, and then the moral laws. So the, the civic laws are all those laws in the Old Testament about how nation, uh, Israel functions as a nation. Those laws in the coming of Jesus, and since there is no national Israel as described in the Old Testament, no longer apply. Then you have the ceremonial laws, the Levites and the bulls and the goats and all those sort of commands. 
But as the book of Hebrews explains, those were fulfilled in Christ. They were simply foreshadows of the ministry of Jesus. So those no longer apply. But then you have all of these ethical commands summarized in the Ten Commandments. What about all of those? Like, is a Christian duty-bound to obeying the Ten Commandments? And Paul here lists four of the ten. Notice he says, you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, or covet. What's interesting about these four is that in the Ten Commandments, these are all on the second tablet. Typically, they talk about the first tablet of the Ten Commandments, which are the vertical commands of God, and then you have the second tablet, which is is more of the horizontal commands that we have. In fact, I have a chart here just to help you. Maybe you didn't haven't read the Ten Commandments, although I think all of us should have these memorized truly, and we should teach them to our children. But you see the vertical commands, and these are all have something to do about with man's relationship to God. But then you have the second uh, uh, tablet, and these are all these horizontal things about how we treat one another. Paul doesn't list any off the vertical. All of them are off the horizontal. Don't adulterate, don't murder, don't steal. These are all the not to commands, and certainly we should not do them. So don't leave here thinking, hey, I guess we can murder now. No, 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 no. He is not setting aside these not two commands. Rather, he's explaining about how love fulfills them. In fact, each of these not two commands have a, if you think about them, a correlating positive command. They're written down in the negative, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But by saying don't do this, it's essentially saying do this. Now, if you happen to grow up in the quasi-fundamental Christian circles that I did, most of what I heard in terms of like how we live the Christian life was the don't do, the not to. And if you talk to anybody that grew up in that sort of background, they could give you a long list of all the things that good Christians don't do. And you know what? There are a lot of things that good Christians don't do. That's true. But to me, I think it would have been much more helpful looking back on it if there would have been at least an equal emphasis on all the things that we are to do. <laughs> and so you grow up as a Christian thinking, these are the things that I get to do rather than these are the things that I, that I don't get to do. And, and frankly, when you're 16, these are most of the things that you want to do. <laughs> but you're, those are the things you don't do. We need to replace that with the things, or fulfill that, as Paul says here, with the things that we are to do. Otherwise, Christianity becomes depressing and uninspiring. And maybe you've been in church backgrounds where it just beats you over the head with all the things that you shouldn't do and you knew that week those were the things you were doing and you just feel guilty perpetually and you think Christianity is just a list of things we don't do. No. The most important things about being a Christian aren't the things that we don't do. They are the things that we do do. And the emphasis is on the positive. And even in these negative commands, for example, the four that he lists here, There is a correlative positive. Don't sleep with someone else's spouse is a command to find fulfillment sleeping with your own spouse. Don't murder is a command to value human life and respect other people. Don't steal is a command to enjoy the blessings of a generous life of giving. And don't covet is to treasure all the good gifts with gratitude that God has given to me. So the not to commands all have a got to associated with them, but there is one got to command, in the words of Tolkien, that rules them all. 
and it is this one command, love. Again, look at the text. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And this is where Paul is pointing us to. Not to adultery and thievery, but pointing us and trying to best not to do those things, but rather the positive, which is to love. And this famous word in the Greek, the agape, if you've heard of it in general, is describing a very different love than what the Beatles were singing about. Because in the Bible, we look to the character of God and the character of Jesus to understand what love looks like. And what we find in that kind of love is not, you know, the, the Beatles song and most of the songs and, and talk about love is a very different kind of love. In fact, you wouldn't even necessarily call it love because it is a love that is based on self. It is a love that is self-gratifying. It is a love that is all about self-advancement and self-fulfillment. It's to make love all about me. But this is where we begin with those first five commands in the, in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. The number one God in this world is self. And so the love that flows from the worship of self is a very self-focused version of love. It is love that says this, I'll serve other people as long as it makes me feel good. I'll remain faithful to my spouse as long as she satisfies me. I'll love my neighbor because doing so advances my standing in society and perhaps gets me the coveted position of secretary in the HOA. I'm gonna kiss up to the neighbors around me. Self-love does not fulfill the law. Selfless love fulfills the law. Because when my orientation towards other people is towards what is for their good and joy, now I am not living in a manner where this is about me. I am being a Christian neighbor who is seeking to fulfill the needs of other people. And that switch, that little change, is the point that Jesus makes when he says that this is the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's a small, it's just a little change between love your neighbor as yourself and love your neighbor for yourself. That is not a great commandment. That's a terrible commandment. That's how Satan lives every single day. But the Christian who has tasted of the grace of God views the cross and sees Jesus giving his entire life for our good and joy forever now has that love, the seeds of that gospel love in my heart, which as God continues to transform me, he gets me over me and allows me to live in a manner of love that sees the needs of other people as being more important than my own and seeks to meet those needs. Selfless love. Here's how Jesus said it, Matthew 7, so in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Possibly Paul is basically vamping on that very verse in the Old Testament. So rather than a list of not-tos, love 
is the got to. Love. And again, our definition here at Bethel of love, we've used this for many years, self-giving for the good and joy of another. Self-giving for the good and the joy of another. And yes, the Christian ethic includes the not-tos, right? No adultery, no murdering of other people, no stealing and thieving, no coveting. We affirm that. We're not talking about sentimental, make up your own uh, ethics here. But we have to be as, if not more committed to the loving of our neighbor as we are to the things that we're not supposed to do. So if you, if you, if you, if you hear people talk about, are, are you a good person, for example? They'll say, yes, I'm a good person, better than most that I know. And you say, well, why do you think that? And they'll say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. I've never robbed a bank or nothing, okay? Sixth commandment, eighth commandment. I haven't done these things, therefore I am an ethically good person. What is missing from their understanding? It is this point right here, that our calling is not to just avoid the things that we're not supposed to do, it is to be equal if not more concerned with doing the things that we are supposed to do and doing them for the right reason. Not for me and advancing me, but for them as an act of worship to God. The little phrase here that has stuck with me in the text just personally is love does no wrong to its neighbor. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. But Pastor Steve, who's my neighbor? Well, that sounds like a verse maybe I've heard in the Bible. Do you remember that? When Jesus was asked that very question in response to the second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor that I might love them? And Jesus famously tells the parable of who? The Good Samaritan. And I don't have time to tell the whole thing here, but you probably know the point of the story is not asking the question, who is my neighbor, but asking the question, to whom can I be a neighbor to? And the answer to that question is, anybody that God places in my path of life, even the, the beat up, uh, the, the beat up racially different person than me along the road, which is the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even that person is somebody that I'm a neighbor to? Love does no wrong to its neighbor. So who's your neighbor, friend? You might say, well, it's Frank. He's lived behind the house for 35 years. And, you know, right now you're thinking about that time 10 years ago that you, you know, blew out his driveway when he had his knee replaced. And you're thinking, I'm a good neighbor, right? I've fulfilled the, the law. This is what I'm supposed to do. Let's talk about your closest neighbor. If you're married, your closest neighbor is your spouse. Now look at that verse again and see if that feels convicting. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. What about your brother or your sister? Love does no wrong to its neighbor. What about your parents or your in-laws? Love does no wrong to its neighbor. What about the coworker or the fellow student, the annoying one? Love does no wrong to its neighbor. What about the, the church member? 
I've always, I've always sort of viewed the, the level of sanctification of a church to be very much on display as the parking lot empties on a Sunday morning. Who here is living this out in any sort of way? What about the fellow church member? What about the one that disagrees with you politically? Well, not that one. What about the one that has a different perspective than you in the current cultural war? Not that one. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. Are you being neighborly towards people, even the ones that disagree with you in things that you view very important? Here's Philippians 4. Let your gentleness be evident to all. If we were to get on your Facebook page or your social media account and saw all the things that you've been saying and posting and the way you've been doing so, would we think, oh, look at the gentleness on display here. You say, well, what's that look like? Here's what it looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Neighborly love is patient. Neighborly love is kind. Neighborly love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Neighborly love never fails. That's how we fulfill the commands of the Lord. You get that one right, you got all the other, the other ones right as well. Love. And you're like, I've never had a neighbor like that. Actually, you've had one, even if you don't realize it. The greatest neighbor any of us has ever had is Jesus Christ. How do we say that? Well, who did, whose needs did he put in front of his own? Clearly, it would have been far better to stay up there in heaven and just enjoy the, the worship of the angels and the, the joy of, of the triune God. But what did Jesus do? He put our needs in front of his own. He came to us. We didn't go to him. And in coming, what did he do? He sacrificed himself. And so we look at the cross, and we see in this device of torture, perhaps the worst in all of human history, and we look at that, and we don't necessarily see pain, right? We don't, we don't see blood. Why do Christians look to the cross? Because on the cross we see love. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. And we see Jesus on that cross, and we realize he's the, he's the best neighbor we've ever had. He's the best friend that we've ever had. He shows us what neighborly love looks like. This Jesus who took his sins, our sins and our guilt upon himself allowing himself to be nailed to a cross and dying in our place. Aren't we glad that Jesus came into our neighborhood? Loved us perfectly. And now he calls us to the same kind of love to the neighbors in our life. Let's love like that.